Hello, and welcome to On Record In Conversation. I'm Jess Collins from the Birmingham Music Archive. In this podcast series, recorded in front of a live studio audience, we explore the vibrant and diverse music history, heritage and culture of Birmingham through the stories of some of those who have shaped and continue to influence the city's musical landscape. In this episode, Adrian Goldberg talks to John Mustin about moving to Birmingham, managing the beat and the fine young cannibals, helping to launch two-tone and ocean colour scene, rescuing a Birmingham music venue and running an historic recording studio. Welcome along, it's lovely to see you here. Our guest tonight is a music manager and entrepreneur whose credits include Birmingham Legends, The Beat, Fine Young Cannibals, Ocean Colour Scene and the Detroit band Inner City. Fine Young Cannibals hit number one in the United States with their debut album, The Raw and the Cooked, which has been certified platinum 11 times over. Not bad for a band who once couldn't get arrested, never mind signed. John helped them get a recording deal. He also put out the first Ocean Colour Scene recordings on his own label and helped launch the magnificent two-tone movement. Oh, yes, and he saved Digbeth Civic Hall from demolition. Now the Institute, of course. For six years, he ran the iconic Highbury Studios in King's Heath. He's also got, and I only discovered this this evening, a couple of amazing failures to his name. John, that is an amazing CV, and you are still very much active in music and promotion as well today? Yes, I'm having fun at Castle Bromwich Hall Gardens, where they allow me to put on a wide variety of music from both the UK and around the world, and it's an absolute joy. It's not gardening, leave, it's, it's working in the gardens, and it's a joy. <laughs> A question I've always wanted to know. You have been a music entrepreneur, but people would know you as a music manager. What does a, the manager of a band actually do? I think the number one responsibility of a manager is to keep the artists alive. <laughs> and number two is to say things about the artist that if they said themselves, you'd go, get out of it. But a manager can speak on the artist's behalf in a way that an artist can't. The same thing applies to an agent and a record label, of course, but a manager, it's, it's key. But do you think being a manager is an underrated talent? Because you don't write the words, you don't write the music, yet there is a sense, at least with some bands, that without the manager, they wouldn't be up there. It, it is underrated and it's desperately underpaid. We'll talk more about your managerial <laughs> career, John. Uh, tell me about your growing up, your family, where you were born and your, your background. I was lucky to be born in Altrincham in Cheshire, which is a sort of suburb of Manchester now, but it meant that I could grow up fishing and leading a wonderfully healthy life until I was about 13, um, when I discovered that Girls were more interesting than fishing, and it all went downhill from there, frankly. But I was very lucky, and I, unfortunately, the one bit of bad luck I had was that I lost my mum when, when I was 10. So it was just my dad and I for uh, the next six or seven years, and, and that was tough. Um, and it, I only mention it, really, because it's only in the last couple of years whilst I've tried to start writing my memoir that I've realised what a significant effect that was on my life. However, I took the opportunity 
around 16 to go to the nightclubs of Manchester, as they were then, which was the Oasis and the Twisted Wheel. And I was lucky enough to be as close as you guys are now to me to hear Otis Redding, Wilson Pickett, Ike and Tina Turner. And when you're that close, you, I defy anyone to have that experience and it not mark them in some way. What led you to those iconic artists? Um, I'd always been interested in music, but actually it was fun as well. <laughs> in fairness, it was music and fun. You know, going out for a, a night at 16 when you're going to go and see Ike and Tina Turner and there's going to be a bunch of other young people and you're all trying to dress right and you're, you're all up for it. Oh, who, who could turn that down? And did you have any siblings, any brothers or sisters who you could kind of borrow records off or share musical taste with? No, no. I, w I, was, I was born after a, a, a number of miscarriages and a lost sibling. So when I was born, the sun shone out of my bottom. <laughs> and, uh, and, and that gave me a sort of sense that the world is a wonderful place, which I've never lost, but it, it's left me with an optimism in life that some people find very confusing, but I know where it comes from. <laughs> but it's fair to say you were indulged then. I was indulged until I was 10, and then, it's a bit odd, but I actually passed my 11 plus, so I went to grammar school, and my dad was a cable jointer with the Northwest Electricity Board. And I've spoken to other people who went to grammar school about this. And invariably, there are going to be conflicts at home when your parents, or in my case, a parent, has this background and you are coming back pumped up from grammar school with all these posh friends that you now have with a whole different view of the world than he has. So there was tension. Yeah, and you've mentioned your mum. And again, I didn't know this detail about you before, John, about your mum passing away at 10. When you look back at that now, as you kind of address that in later life, what impact do you think that had on you? It left me incredibly irresponsible. Uh, you know, in a, quite a serious way. It meant I didn't have a belief that relationships were permanent anymore or that anything was permanent. My world was rocked. And so I started doing things for next year or next week. Next year was on a very good day. I didn't ever take the long-term view so that is quite a profound impact isn't it and you yeah. you trace that back yeah. to losing your mum yeah it I shook know, your I foundations have i realized the significance of that mm. so you're 16 you're getting into nightclubs yes. in the center of manchester yes schooling university <laughs> out the window mate <laughs> none of that carry on no um i in fact i i ran away from school before i was due to take my then O-levels. There was one proud moment, though, when uh, in the fourth year, as we called it then, so I was 15, the headmaster called me up in front of the whole school as an example of how not to dress for speech day the following day. <laughs> and that was probably my proudest moment in school, because you did everything you could to adapt to the uniform, you know. You'd wear trousers that were the wrong width and whatever you could get away with. So you were quite... And I had long hair. You were quite carefree, I think it's fair to say. And when would yeah. this have been? In the late 60s? Uh, yes, I was 16 in 66. So imagine, you know, that I'd got school on one side and I'd got this whole crazy hippie scene enveloping me on the other. Yeah. Where was I going to go? So 
you left school without any qualifications. Yep. And what did you do then? I worked for Raymond Furs on Dean, Dean Street in Manchester, who sold fur coats. This, God, this is shameful, isn't it? But I didn't know then. And um, we travelled around the country literally selling fur coats and we'd have a different reason in each city in one city it'd be it was due to a fire <laughs> all these coats were cheap and another it'd be due to floods but um at 16 i was literally going around the country um that only lasted a few months so i began to wise up to the fur trade and then i i i became a i can't really <laughs> i became a chain boy a chain boy <laughs> yes um <laughs> I actually Googled that the other day. I thought, I don't Google chain boy, but I thought, go on, try it. And sure enough, there are still jobs as chain boys. And it's basically an assistant to a civil engineer. So you would literally hold the end of the chain at the direction of the engineer. Anyway, they seemed to think that I had some skills. So they sent me to be a, a trainee junior civil engineer. And I attended Stockport Technical College. Yes, yeah, so that was great. And what, what kind of projects were you working on then? What would oh, you God, this is embarrassing. What chain would you If you ever on? fly into Manchester Airport, <laughs> I, I helped to build the runway extension and the road that goes under the extension. And we used to ride around the fields that we were about to wreck in this little open-top mini-moke. And, and it was utterly wonderful. It was an inspiring, great time. And working with these people that I worked with, who were so hard-working, and a lot of them were sort of ex-soldiers. They'd either been in the war or they'd been um, conscripted. So they brought an attitude about hard work with them. So I think that was a good training ground for what hard work is. Did you get a qualification out of that? No. <laughs> I, I ran off to Cornwall. <laughs> okay. So how did you end up in Birmingham? Well, I've been in Cornwall for a few years where I was a very successful beach bum. When, I, when I, I was at the hospital the other day and they said, did you expose yourself to the sun much as a young man? And I said, well, I was a, a really successful beach bum moving between Cornwall and Morocco. So I think the answer is yes. But no one told us then about using sunscreen. So I'd done that for about five years, and then a chap that I'd worked with briefly in Altrincham uh, called me up and said, I'm opening a furniture store in Solihull. Would you like to come and work with me there? And I thought, well, I've explored beach culture. I know every Beach Boys song. I know wave formations. I, I'm good at how sand works. So I've kind of done everything. Let's go and have a, a blast of city life. So I came to Solihull and, um, and got stuck into Birmingham. The unlikely trajectory of a music mogul. <laughs> Cornwall, Morocco, yeah. and a furniture shop in Solihull. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now, obviously, you were caught up... I say obviously, you'd tell me if I'm wrong. You were caught up in a sense in the hippie trail, and I can't imagine what substances were imbibed, but... Mild I, I, ones. I'm assuming, though, that music was part of that because it was part of that culture yeah, wasn't it yeah absolutely and in in cornwall i went a lot to a place called a folk cottage in a little tiny village called mitchell where i saw like the great folk performers of that time like from ranging from mike chapman the incredible string band the famous jug band um so on one level i was listening to new stuff that was coming from america on a soul tip, but on the other hand, I was still able to enjoy folk music. So I, I got really wide tastes then, you know. 
We didn't go to see live bands much in Cornwall because not many came. I remember seeing Free. But when I came to Birmingham, I got a very open mind about music. And I, it wasn't on my mind to do anything musical at all. And at that point, had you ever been in a band, played an no. instrument? Good Lord, no. 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 I, I, was, I was a good fan. You know, I would support live music. I would buy records. Uh, but that was it. So you came here with no intention of getting involved in music. You just came here to work in your mates. I came to sell furniture in Solihull. Yeah, yeah. I moved into a house, three one five Hagley Road, which happened to be the home of people like Jim Cleary, Dave Cravel from the Steve Gibbons Band, the wonderful Guy Hutchins. And they were all, there was no one there that wasn't a poet or a songwriter. And it was effectively a sort of commune. And after I'd lived there for a couple of months, I realised that these people, Jim and uh, Dave in particular, were really good, really amazing artists, but they couldn't organise themselves for toffee. And that led me to suggesting that maybe I should organise some gigs for them. So I started putting gigs on upstairs at the Fighting Cox in Moseley, about 72, 73, called Big Ears. And that was a wonderful home of acoustic music in the city for the next two or three years. It was a really interesting time because there were rock clubs where you couldn't possibly play folk music and there were folk clubs where you couldn't possibly play rock music. But what Big Ears did was give an opportunity to songwriters that were in either genre and often mixed it together so we really offered a, a rare audience fulfillment opportunity for those writers and, uh, and singers. Victoria Wood did a, one of her first shows there. And was it pure chance that you ended up in that house in the Hagley Road with it, that bunch it of was, people? I'd moved into Moseley, Church Road Moseley, and then I went into the Fighting Cocks and I got into a conversation that was quite heated with a fellow called James Langston. And then we became mates, and I said to James, I'm interested in learning the guitar. And he said, oh, talk to Dave Carroll. So he gave me Dave's number. I arranged to go and see Dave, who lived at 315 Fagley Road. And when uh, Dave, unlike him, was a little late for our appointment, I'd met the other people in the house, and by the time Dave arrived, they'd asked me if I'd like to move in. At that point, I gave up trying to learn guitar and the thing I've enjoyed most is working with people that can do things better than I can on, on any level really but particularly singers songwriters musicians so I put mine down and enjoyed working with people that I really respected for their talents and I'm presuming at some point then the promoting at the fighting cock starts to take over and the selling of furniture in Sully Hall starts to wither away. Yes, my dear Bloss, Claude, Claude <laughs> Hooper was very kind and understanding. But the a critical moment was, I think we've been doing Big Ears for about a year, and a fellow called Rob Cowling came up to me and he said, would you like to be a roadie? And I said, what does a roadie do? He said, well, you carry band's gear around, set it up. Oh, that sounds interesting. Yeah, I'll give that a go. I said, when should we start? He said, day after tomorrow. So... Three days after he'd asked me, I was on, on a stage in a London, major London venue with the crowd roaring, Bill Haley and the Comets playing away, and I'm trying to figure what cable goes in where. 
<laughs> but we, well, I bluffed it. I got away with it under Rob's direction. So suddenly I was touring with one of the iconic figures of rock and roll. I heard Rock Around the Clock for 74 nights consecutively. <laughs> so it was goodbye furniture, hello rock and roll. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Was that it? From, I mean, from that point on then, you've only yeah. ever worked in music. Yeah. I've had a few odd jobs like everyone does when they're resting along the way, but generally, yeah. Was there, was there any more sort of great roadie stories or, or people you roadied for? Not that I can repeat. No, no, no. Okay, well, no. let's draw a discreet veil then. But I did have the joy of working with the Drifters. That was a really important moment. And Ghoul was in the news for some reason the other day. And I remember being in Ghoul with the Drifters. And it was the first show of the tour that we did with them. And hearing those four voices in harmony at the... It wasn't even at the sound check, it was in the dressing room. So I'm sat there and there's these four guys around me and they're just letting rip with these harmonies. I just, I'd never heard that firsthand before. I'd seen it on a stage, but to actually be in that space was very, very special. And as a music fan then, you are in a sense living the dream at that moment. You're yeah. having to shift the gear, but you're, yeah, yeah. you're close up to it. Yeah, yeah. And who was your first gig in management? Well, before that came, I, I ended up, becoming an agent um, because at some point I realized that well I've been to all these venues as a roadie um, oh I sold records after that where you used to go out with a car and toured the west the whole of the west midlands visiting record shops and trying to sell I worked for a label called transatlantic and they had really obscure folk artists and some blues and some jazz so I wasn't that popular with the shops. Apart from the specialist ones, they like to see me. But if you go into WH Smith's and go, I've got this great new obscure blues release. Oh, yeah, go on. Um, we'll have one. And then it came to a point where I thought I really should... It was probably mid, mid to late 70s when I thought I had my first sort of responsible adult moment. I thought I should try and do something that can build somewhere and I should like look beyond the next few months for the first time. So with a gentleman called John Seeley, we set up Oak Agency and that uh, was set up to serve the artists of the West Midlands and get them gigs around the country and eventually overseas. And it was through being an agent that I had the joy of meeting Jerry Dammers. He came to me one day. I didn't know who he was. And I was in, working from my home in Bearwood. And the, the door goes, and I open the door. There's this admittedly strange-looking chap. And he said, you John Mostyn? I said, yeah. He said, uh, can I talk to you? Yeah, come in. So what can I do for you? He said, um, well, we've made this record, and I've pressed a 1,000, and I'm worried that we're going to sell them. So we'd like some gigs to help that. I said, okay, sit down, let's, let's put the record on. And that was Gangsters by the Specials. So I said, ah, oh, I think you're going to be okay. <laughs> and immediately booked the first tour. And then on the back of Gangsters is a track by Selector. And Selector didn't exist as a band, it was just a name. But they quickly put a band together and called it Selector. So I booked their tour as well. 
And I remember we were mentioning Sheffield earlier. There's a chap at the Limit Club in Sheffield. And I used to call him up and go, I've got another one. He said, you can't have another one. I have. <laughs> so they, uh, I, I was agent for the specials, the selector. And then um, the Beats Den management came along and asked if I'd go and see them, which I did at the New Inns on the Mosley Road. And I think it was their third or fourth gig. And... I fell in love with them immediately. So I was able, because of my relationship with Jerry and the rest of the two-tone team, to say, hey, we've got another one here. And Jerry was like, well, would you like to put a record out on two-tone? Because two-tone was happening then through Chrysalis. Specials had had big hits. Selector had. So effectively, the beat were the next. And they released their first single on two-tone. Yeah. 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 And their then management, who were nice people, but they weren't from any sort of music biz background, eventually sort of faded away and left me to it. And you became the Beats manager? Yes. There's an element of right place, right time, although you'd obviously worked yourself to be in that position as well. But do you think you've got special ears or good ears that can, that can spot that talent before other people might have been able to? Well, I'd like to say I have, but I don't. Because I'm right half the time, which is better than most people who work for record labels. But I'm very conscious that I'm only right half the time. Well, we'll come to the uh, failures, which are worth hearing in a moment. But you still heard something in that track, Gangsters, which, of course, now we look back and uh, it is a great song and a, a special moment in pop and so on. But I saw the specials in those early days as well. And of course, we now recognise what great music this was. It wasn't inevitable. It didn't feel inevitable at the time to me that this would be a band who 40 years later we'd still be playing and listening to. It did to me on that first play. You have got specialists. <laughs> oh, perhaps I've just... Amongst my sort of misspent youth, I've, I've had such a wide array of listening and I've followed fashion... And I was aware of reggae, and I was aware of punk, and suddenly here were the two coming together, and I just thought, this is a no-brainer, this is just going to fly. And the beat then were your first proper management gig. Yes. How yeah. was that? It was great, because I'd done so much in the music industry at this point. When it came to touring, I knew what touring was about. When it came to selling records, I actually understood the physicality of selling records into shops and how important it, that was. So I could have useful conversations with record labels. And I was good as a negotiator. I knew not to accept the first deal that came along. I knew to try and find sympathetic record labels for the artists. Because we released uh, Tears of a Clown on two-tone. And Jerry and I both knew that the beat wouldn't stay on the label, but that it would put us in a position to negotiate a great deal. And there's no, when you've got a number eight single, there's no better time to be talking to record labels, you know. And so we did a deal with Arista, who sort of promised to give us our own label called GoFeed, which subsequently we released stuff on. But what I, where I was really clever was I knew enough not to do a publishing deal right then. And that meant that we could do a publishing deal after about our third hit single. So we did an incredible publishing deal with a company called Zomba, who, who were really without taste. But you look at the history of Zomba and the, the deals that they did in the world, 
In fact, the guy that we dealt directly with then, Clive Calder, 15 years ago, sold Zomba and the whole Zomba group, where he was the only shareholder for four billion. So, you know, I've met these guys and seen how they work, you know. Unfortunately, I didn't learn very much. <laughs> no, but it's interesting. I mean, there will be artists who are very successful, who were contemporaries of the beat, who did not have John Mostyn as their manager, and who are sadly today penniless. And that, that will not be the case with the beat, or at least if it is, it won't be as a result of any deal that you did. That's right. I was good at helping them keep their money. If only I could have applied it to myself. <laughs> <laughs> Following that then, you're on a hot streak and you discover Fine Young Cannibals, Rolling Gift. Uh, no, well, it wasn't a hot streak. I, I did a... I think I was two or three years with The Beat for their first two albums. And, and then there were the... I wouldn't say artistic differences, but slight internal differences. And I thought, no, I've done this now. Uh, I don't want to work with these guys in, in the immediate future. So I resigned my management position, and I said sincerely, I hope to work with you all again one day, but right now I've had enough. And I naively thought, well, there's been all these great bands come out of the city, and especially during that time, I needn't list them. But I thought, I'll look out for the next talent to emerge. Nothing. It was like a desert. You know, you look back at the history of Birmingham artists emerging and the mid to late 60s we ruled the world I once figured about 10% of the albums in the world in the late 60s were from Led Zepp, ELO, Black Sabbath and that bunch that emerged at that time then from the late 60s through to the late 70s nothing emerged out of town maybe the Steve Gibbons band that was it and then from the early 80s, after that great explosion, which, of course, you know, musical youth and Dexes and Duran Duran, UB40, The Beat, then there was nothing again. So I was caught in nothing. And it was 84 when I thought, well, I'm, I'm in big trouble now. And I, I, for some reason, I was going to take a job selling cameras. And I had no idea about cameras, but it was something. And I was due to start on a Monday, and Andy Cox from The Beat, and subsequently Fine Young Cannibals, called up on the Sunday and said, can I come and see you? And it was the first time we'd spoken since I'd left The Beat three years earlier. So uh, he came along and he said, we've made this demo. And I put that on, and once again, I knew straight away this was gold. I mean, the first thing on it was Johnny Come Home, and three or four other great tracks. And I said, well, what's the story? He, he said, well, we've asked this Birmingham-based lawyer to send these out for us, and we've had a rejection from every label in the country, apart from London Records, who offered us a singles deal. Um, I said, okay. And what it was, really, Andy, David, and Roland, let's say they were very cautious financially, and they would really like to have managed without a manager, and they thought you can pay a lawyer less than a percentage. And it was only when the lawyer <laughs> succeeded in having 30 rejection letters that they thought, oh, God, we're going to have to talk to Mostyn again. So, of course, Andy and, and David knew me from the beat. So they knew I was straight. 
and they just didn't want to pay me anything. But then uh, they'd, they'd found Roland and they'd looked for... It was them that spotted Roland. After the beat broke up, Andy and David were like, okay, we're going to do something. And they were very, very clever. They knew the sort of voice that they were looking for and they spent two years looking for it. They advertised on MTV. They auditioned loads and loads of people. And then eventually they remembered... A guy who used to play sax in a band called the Acrylics, who'd supported the beat a couple of times, and they, they called Roland, Capri was he, because they, they thought he'd looked cool. That was why they phoned him. They tracked him down to Hull and said, do you sing? And he said, well, I do a bit, but I'm really an actor. They said, well, we've got some songs. Come and have a go at these. So he came and had a go and... So it was them that found him, and then they, they formed themselves into this trio and came to me. I think it's just worth musing, isn't it, that so many of the bands that you've mentioned and that you've worked with, John, had a multicultural lineup, and we kind of now take that for granted, I think, in Birmingham. People forget that in the late 1970s, just prior to this massive explosion, the National Front were on the rise, and they were powerful in parts of Birmingham as well. So you weren't just involved in great bands but they were great bands whose meaning went beyond the sounds they made absolutely that two-tone tour and the subsequent gigs that i did with the beat was musically and politically the most joyous time of my life i'll never live through anything like that again in the midlands and the north we were welcomed everywhere it was that area about 25 miles out of london where your crazy National Front prats would come along and try to disrupt the shows. And they, it was nasty, you know, there's a lot of trouble. So I learned, well, we ain't going to play there. <laughs> um, but the speed that that two-tone broke from the moment that, that Jerry came to me with his gangsters to a year later, we'd, we'd be travelling down a high street in the, anywhere in the UK 30 or 40% of the shops and all the clothes shops would be black and white squares. You know, we'd literally changed the look of the high street for a while. And that was incredible. And the pure joy of having, I think we were very close to being the first people to have black and white performers, musicians on TV. Maybe it was the spinners, the folk group before that. Um, but yeah, we were very conscious that we were showing that black and white could not only exist together, but have a lot of fun together. And being a part of that was a blessing, absolute blessing. And you are a man of uh, political conviction. And I wonder whether your political convictions arose out of that time or whether you had them going into that period anyway. I think going into that period, yeah. And finding like-minded folk who I could also respect as great musical talents was just perfect. You know, it just had everything. It was unbelievably exciting and satisfying. To come back to Fine Young Cannibals then, you've got this band who I mentioned in the introduction, I think the, uh, the Roar and the Cooked went platinum 11 times, number one in the US Billboard chart and all that. How does it feel to be the manager of that band at that moment? It was hard work, number one. <laughs> People said, oh, you must have been to some great parties. We never parted. Um, Andy, David Rowland and I were a great working unit. But when we sort of left the office, we never, we never hung out together or anything. 
And I think it was, you kind of saw the world, but you didn't because all you did was live on planes and hotels. You never, it was only after three or four years that you could actually go somewhere and say, well, I'll, I'll stay on for a few days and check out this bit of coral sea or whatever, you know, but that was a long time coming. But there were unique personalities, the three of them. They did used to tease me. They were terrible teases. But a, a good way of winding up your manager is to go and hide just before you're due on, on a national TV show, you know. And I was thinking earlier, there was one case, we were doing a TV show in, in Munich, and uh, Roland had, it was Roland's turn to hide. He wasn't in his room. And uh, the hotel, I went round the hotel, and I couldn't find him, and then I noticed that there was a sort of spa area, and I thought, oh, he's, he, he could well be there. So I went up to the reception of the spa area, and said, I'm just, excuse me, do you have a good-looking tall black man here? <laughs> and this German receptionist looked at me over her glasses and said, we are not that sort of establishment, sir. <laughs> yes, they, they were very naughty. The other great Birmingham success that you're associated with, John, was Ocean Colour Scene. And on this one, you went one further, didn't you? You actually owned the record label on which their first recordings were released. I did, yes. I met them when they were the Fanatics. And uh, we, we released uh, a record through Chapter 22, which is a great local label. And then on my world travels, I teamed up with a chap called Jonathan Hughes when I was in New Zealand. And he left the gorgeousness of New Zealand to come and work with me in Birmingham, for which I'll be eternally grateful. And uh, he and I formed FIT, and we released the first Ocean Colour Scene single, uh, which went to 41 in the charts. Sorry, in between. The Fanatics ended. And, and when the Fanatics stopped, I went to Simon and said Simon to Simon yeah. whatever you want to do, we'll support you. I don't care what it is, just take your time, you know, get a feel for what you want to do next, and you as a singer and writer, we will support all the way. And to my surprise, he came back a few months later with uh, Steve Craddock, who said, I found my guitarist. And they, Steve Craddock's father was um, involved in the management. Um, that led to some fun, because his background was as a, as a policeman. So we were coming from different viewpoints. Um, so we released, we did, what was the first single? Anyway, released that on our label. And it frustratingly went to 41, but it did mean that we had the attention of all the major record labels. And uh, we had an auction on our hands to work with our little label, which is what the majors tended to do at the time, was to make offers to labels. And um, <laughs> it was at that moment that through a couple of links we had, the word came that Murdoch was setting up a new label and he'd like to offer us £5 million for our label. Rupert Murdoch offered you five million pounds. Yes. And I turned it down. <laughs> Not working with you, mate. Yeah, I didn't have to think about it. In fact, if Ocean Colour Scene are listening to this, this is the first they'll know about this. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> oh dear. I, I, I think that's really interesting, especially given, you know, your self-admitted kind of footloose and fancy-free lifestyle, the fact that you are a man of deep political conviction and would not work with Rupert Murdoch, even though he was dangling a very big cheque in front of you. Yeah, absolutely. And Ocean no Colour scene is still going. <laughs> because of the odd relationship with them, them manager and myself, um, I gave them a choice. We ended up going to Phonogram. Phonogram were basically saying, right, Fit will do the marketing and the A&R, and we'll just provide the, the muscle when required. Great. We took the first single that we wanted to release in to phone, under the new phonogram deal, and uh, then the A&R guy said, well, you can put it out, but we're not going to get behind it. And it's like, no, this isn't how it's supposed to work. So here comes trouble. So I said to the band, we might have to have a bit of a battle with phonogram but to get out of this deal, but we can, or you can sign with them directly and foot will step away. And they chose to sign to phonogram directly. And Foot came away with a few bob. Yeah. Were you disappointed to lose that connection with the band? Not really. Um, it was just the way it was going to be. And we were so busy at the time. And I made pals with uh, Neil Rushton, who'd found Inner City in Detroit. So I think there was a point, I, I must look, it, look this up, but there was a point around that time when... I think we had Inner City in the charts, Ocean Colour Scene hovering just under, and other stuff going on as well. It was, I was riding high, full of it. Full of it, absolutely full of it. <laughs> Brilliant stuff. Yeah, and, so, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, goodbye Ocean Colour Scene, good luck, you know. Yeah, I can live without you. But, but yeah. I, did, I did meet Simon and Steve Craddock about three years ago, for the first time for 25 years. And Simon cracked me up, he said, do you know, I was thinking the other day, if it hadn't been for you, we wouldn't have happened. And I thought, it's only taken him 25 bloody years. <laughs> <laughs> I want to talk to you about the failures as well, because I discovered a couple of things when we were in the green room just before we came out here. Stories, John, and I've known you for a few years. A couple of bands that you passed up. Well, one I passed on and one I made a... Uh, an ill-conceived observation. The, the critical one was I mentioned that we set up Gofi with the beat. And when bands would send tapes to us with a view to Gofi releasing them, it was my job to listen to them. So it was about 10 years later when, for some reason, I read the Wham! biography. And I got to, like, page 30, and it said... George and Andrew knew that they were destined not to be a ska band when they re received a rejection note from Kofi Records. <laughs> <laughs> that was me. I'd actually managed to send George and Andrew a rejection note. They went on to say that it was receiving this rejection note that decided them that they were destined not to be a ska band so they went and wrote some pop tunes. So I like to kind of... <laughs> <laughs> I 
credit myself with saying the right thing at the right time. I mean, I can't really see George skanking, can you? It was never, it was never going to happen. Well, and they, Andrew, still, they haven't released the album, Andrew have they? Andrew was far too pretty. They haven't released the album, have they? Wham, the sky is. So <laughs> I, I think you're all right. And no, the I, other I have looked for that tape once or twice, but the it's other, gone. The other band you scoffed at? Um, yeah, well, yes, I did scoff. Uh, the beat were playing Hammersmith Pally, and we were middle of the bill. We were supporting the police, and I'd heard that the band that was going to be on first were worth checking out because it was their first mainland UK show, and there was a bit of a buzz about them. So I left the backstage area, went out into the auditorium, and had a look for about two numbers, and then I went back in. And the guys were like, are they any good? And I went, well, no, nah, they're going nowhere. This lot, that lead singer's a bloody madman. And that was you too. What do you know, John? The no, I, that, that the first... I still think he's a madman. <laughs> <laughs> the first time I met you, John, was... Uh, I was writing for a paper that was either then called the Birmingham Daily News or the Birmingham Metro News around the turn of the 90s. And I came to see you in an office that you had, an old Elizabethan building or Tudor building near yeah, the Stratford Road. Stratford House, which, of course, I shared with Network Records. And you took me down to the club that you were trying to open there, which was called then Digbeth Civic Hall, but which had been closed for a while and was going to become the Institute, and yes. which I think had been threatened with demolition. I had this fan. Birmingham has a great tradition, as we know, of destroying <laughs> wonderful buildings, and this too was under threat. You saved it, but there was all sorts of nonsense going on there. It was a, a five-storey building yes. from memory. Yes. And... The licensing justices in Birmingham, this is one of the reasons for doing the story, the licensing justices in Birmingham insisted that you install a restaurant on every floor. Yes, <laughs> yes. And the reason I got into this situation was because I was conscious that we needed more venues in the city. And people don't realise that after the Birmingham pub bombings, the licensing committee would never give a a license to anywhere that was in a basement. So a lot of venues that you'll find in Liverpool, Manchester, and around the country, there weren't any basement venues in Birmingham after that. So we had the shortage of medium-sized venues. And I literally walked the streets for two years, literally exploring every back alley, every street, every disused whatever, looking for the right place. And I didn't want it to be on Broad Street because I wanted a different vibe. And um, eventually I heard that Digbeth Civic Hall was going to have the front kept, but the bulk of the hall was going to be turned into a car park, which would have been tragic. So this is where... <laughs> I'd met Branson when I was with Fine Young Cannibals. And he said, I was Birmingham. And I said, well, it's, it's all right, but we could do with the venue... And he said, well, if you get any ideas, give me a shout. So Sir I called, Richard Branson. Isn't yeah, I called up Sir Richard and said, well, I think I've found the place. And he said, oh, I'll put you on to my sort of private holdings team and they'll come and have a look at it. Um, so we got into, into bed to establish the venue. And he said it was a bit much for him to do alone. So we, we got in a firm from Sheffield who were experienced nightclub operators to do it together. And the planning of it all was great. We had, uh, had an amazing time dreaming how it could be. And 
it, you know, look at it now. I'm sorry the organ had to go, but I, I do sympathise because the people that run it now, it really is a cracking venue, isn't it? But we kept the organ. And I found, I remember, during the refurb, an electrician called me over and he said, look at this. And I said, what's that? He said, it's a bug. I said, what do you mean it's a bug? He said, it's a listening device. And I slowly unravelled that the special branch would record practically every meeting that went on in those meeting rooms in Digbeth Civic Hall because there were lots of meeting rooms above. So even if you were the sort of party who met there once a week, it was still going to be recorded and everything was going to go down. Wow. That's, I didn't know that. No. I didn't know. Well, there were all sorts. Of, I, mean, I remember going to, like, young CND meetings and such like. You'll there. be was... on tape, mate. <laughs> From the barrel organ, they could just get in range for the bugs that they had. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Incredible. And uh, the other thing about the licensing justices, I mean, this is just a great historical footnote. Because of the Quaker tradition in the city, the opposition to alcohol in Birmingham, the Quakers, of all people had a significant hold on the licensing committee, people who were opposed to the issuing of alcohol licences, yeah, which is one of the reasons why you had this whole set of obstacles to overcome, not least five restaurants for yeah. five storeys. Yeah. <laughs> and turning the air over, you had to be able to change the air in the building 16 times an hour. Now, where we're sat, they're probably changing it twice an hour in this room, maybe a little bit more. But 16, it's like a gale. We get, you'd all be like this. <laughs> so ridiculous costs were put in our way. And in fairness to Sir Richard, he came to the party and stood the costs. And John, you stayed in Birmingham, which is great. I mean, like many people who come to Birmingham who are not a native of the city, you've stayed here, you've continued to contribute to the city. For a number of years, you ran the, the beautiful Highbury Studios. I came to see what Highbury Studios in Kings Heath, which was just a really gorgeous, warm, analogue recording studio, it's effectively in a living room above the house. It was party Heath. central as well. <laughs> <laughs> the, the reason I've stayed in Birmingham is I'm lazy. In that, in the 60s, late 60s, so many of my hippie mates would be doing these long, arduous journeys to places all around the world, and particularly the Far East and Afghanistan and such. And when I'd been in Birmingham for about a year and I'd lived in Mosley for a bit and I'd lived on the Hagley Road, I thought, well, why go anywhere? Everyone's coming here. And I thought, all I've got to do is stay put and most of the world will come by. <laughs> so it's pure idleness. It's not wanting to contribute to the city or anything. <laughs> And that's been the case, you know, I've, I've had such an amazing time. I, you know, I even got to promote Nusrat Fatih Ali Khan when Nelson Mandela came on, on, uh, on his little tour he did when he just got out of jail. And, um, you know, you work with people like, like Nusrat and it's heaven. And that was a gig arranged at incredibly short notice, wasn't it? Others said it, it couldn't be done. I think it was done. seven days notice because they... <laughs> Nelson announced that he was doing this little European tour and the Birmingham City Council called up all the major promoters and saying, we need a concert in seven days. And they all went, nah, don't be silly. 
and then the, the sort of 12th they called said, oh, call Mostyn, he's bad enough to do it. <laughs> so, yes, I ended up promoting the concert to welcome Nelson Mandela to, to Birmingham. And where was that? Um, right, right here. Yeah, at Seville, yeah. 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 Marvellous, yeah. Amazing night. Do you think, John, that you could, or somebody like you, with, you know, footloose and fancy free, with no qualifications, could have the kind of career that you have had now, today, starting out? Well, it, it'd be very different, but I think at the heart of my career is that I was up for taking chances. So, yeah, there was hard work, there was taking chances, there was some luck and some bad luck, but I've kind of come back to, if you, if you get out there, stuff happens. It might not be the stuff that you think was going to happen or that you wanted, but something's going to happen. And I always say this to bands, that you can sit forever doing a business plan, but you get some music out there and the chances of something happening increase dramatically. And it's the same with people as individuals. If I'd not have taken that gig that Rob Cowling offered me when I was running big ears upstairs at the Fighting Cocks, my life, I could have just said no to that and still been doing furniture, you know? And so those rules still apply today. you just got to have nerves of steel and understanding folk around you. Yes, yes. And you've raised two kids, it should be said, as well in amongst all this. Two kids who've decided that the allure of Birmingham was not for them. They've moved and work elsewhere. But you're still here, I'm delighted to say. Uh, John, you can view this both as an insider and as an outsider, I think. And Birmingham does have a bit of a chip on its shoulder uh, about its musical heritage, and we feel sometimes... Not this bit, mate. No, no. Well, I was going to say, <laughs> you know, but, you know, certainly outside of London, cities like Manchester and Liverpool are often more highly regarded critically, I would say. Do you think we have any reason to feel inferior to those places? No, not at all. I think if Lord Grade had invested in... Birmingham and bought um, Granada, for example, to Birmingham, with the freedom to employ people like Tony Wilson, then the story for Birmingham would be different. I mean, Central did some great stuff, but they weren't supporters of the local scene, were they really? You know, So we suffered from that. And I think a phrase that always stays with me is... Well, I think we moan too much. We complain too much. And <laughs> I love that phrase. A cockney is someone born within the sound of bow bells. A brummy is someone born within the sound of someone moaning. <laughs> I think we're, we're rotten at promoting ourselves. And when we do, as a city, we don't do it right. We kind of go out shouting when it's a much more, it's a softer sell. You know, don't, you don't do it by shouting about it or saying we've been overlooked. It's a soft, long process. But eventually, when, when you look at all the music that's come from the city, eventually the world realises that, oh, that's come from there, and that's come from there. And that's how you build a reputation. That's brilliant, John. I should say, by the way, that that quote about the sound of... Yeah, was created by the comedian Lawrence Inman. He was very possessive about it because I once told it and he told me off. <laughs> Thank you, Lawrence. <laughs> and I don't think it's a joke. I think it's true. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Boston, John Mostyn. Thank you very much.
On Record, In Conversation is produced by Siobhan Stevenson for the Birmingham Music Archive and presented by Birmingham 2022 Festival with the generous support of Arts Council England and the National Lottery Heritage Fund. <laughs>